Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 10, Revising History. We're back again, Chris. How you feeling? You know, not too bad. I, I tell you, I'm living the quarantine dream, Josh. How about you? The quarantine dream often turns into the quarantine nightmare, huh? It's a fine <laughs> yeah, line. I had to go there. <laughs> <laughs> you just set me up. You well, can't set me up like that. I, it's true. You know, I, I looked at the news just before we got on, and that was a mistake because the headline was something about, you know, coronavirus cases increasing in 17 states. Uh, and for some reason, it made me think of that Johnny Cash song, you know, How High's the Water, Mama? Yeah. So the prospect of inundation, you know, uh, pandemic. Yeah. I'm trying to keep a trying to keep the smiley face on it. Yeah, I didn't really mean to get us into this this dark dark territory i, I don't know I don't, maybe people don't listen to our podcast to escape the world maybe this is our podcast is inherently a little depressing but uh hopefully we can have some fun with it oh it's it's always in good fun absolutely yeah. we've had a couple milestones with history against the grain haven't we yeah so uh we are recording this the day after our two-month anniversary from our first episode Woo-hoo. march 25th we posted our first episode we are now two months in and 10 episodes in it's our, I looked this up, it's our aluminum anniversary. I, I was going to say, to, you know, they said it would never last, but who am I kidding? Podcasting can go as long as you want. You can never get fired, right? Yeah, but I should, I should also announce now this is our last episode. So thank you guys for listening. <laughs> You're announcing the breakup of the band here on air? Jeez. Yeah, I, you know, you just mentioned bands. You know, the thing with, with bands, like the first, the, fir- the first album, they've been working on their whole lives, basically. It's like, you know, the, the sum total of everything they've thought about and played their entire life and then the second album they got to start from scratch <laughs> i feel like we, we we're just finishing our first album now and now we gotta we gotta work to to get through that second third fourth album make sure we get our our record deal done before we uh figure out the next step right yeah not until we get the double live album am i yeah. calling it quits it's okay. big big in japan it never 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 really hit here in the states but uh took off in japan and, and made our career live at budokan History against the grain. That's what someday after our TED talk, we'll go, we're going to Budokan. <laughs> um, oh, and the, the other thing, big news we meant to talk about last week is that uh, we are opening a, a store on T Public. Uh, we have one design right now. We're gonna probably try to add more. Chris is gonna test his artistic talents with some new designs. He, by the way, is the originator of our Walter Benjamin. Uh, I was gonna say triptych. It's not a triptych. It's four, but. Of, of our uh, of our logo, which uh, I have as my screensaver, and I never get tired of that logo. So he's going to work his magic, maybe try to find some new new designs for us. But right now we have the the um, history against the grain logo, and you can put it on a variety of different things: coffee mugs, coffee mugs, tote bags, uh, phone cases. We hope maybe face masks. You know, for the pandemic, we'll see. I think there might, might be face masks actually mm-hmm. uh, as well. So yeah, you know, we really I started it because I wanted a shirt. But as long as I can get a shirt, why can't you guys get shirts too? Um, so it's, it's exciting. And, uh, and yeah, we'll see, see how that goes. Yeah, we'll get a button up on um, 
on the History Against the Grain website uh, here in the next few days so people can link straight to the uh, the store and and browse our merchandise. Yeah, and I'll put it up on social media as well. And uh, just as a reminder, we are at HistATG on Instagram and Twitter. And then I don't remember if I, I mentioned this last week. If you are listening and enjoying, if you could make sure to go on your whatever podcast platform you, you're, you're on and subscribe first of all because that helps and then rate and review us as well because apparently that, that matters in these uh, metrics that, that de- determine everything in our world right now. So uh, please do that. It'd be really, really nice of you guys. And thanks everybody for listening, by the way, 10 episodes in. Uh, it's been a, a, a growth episode by episode. And it's been really great to see more and more people listening every week. Well, we're nothing without our listeners, that's for sure. Well, you know, we are calling today's episode Revising History. And I think the, the thread will become apparent as, as we go through. But, you know, one of the things that we were talking about, speaking of our conversations over the years, is uh, what we've shared about this process of becoming who we are as historians. And, you know, it occurred to me, Josh, that sometimes folks, we'll call them civilians, you know, outside the, uh, the academy, sometimes see history as a, uh, or the telling of history as a, well, you know, as a finished project. Uh, That is, after all, there's only one past, it's already done with, and so whatever needed to be written about it should itself have already been done. Uh, I remember the the day, I'm taking you back now, my daughter was born, uh, and I must have been a slightly, uh, you know, nervous first-time father, and, and the nurse recognized that and put her people skills to work and asked me uh, what it is that I, I did for a living. And I told her, you know, at the time I was a grad student, and she said, well, what are you studying? And, and I said, history. And without batting an eye, she said, don't we know it all already? <laughs> don't we know it all already? I can't believe you quit graduate school immediately after that, too, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I... I was left uh, momentarily uh, speechless, but I had forgotten about the impending, you know, birth of my child. So the conversation must have worked. But you know, I, in fact, there's even a word, uh, and, I'll, and I'll bounce this off you—a word that describes someone who dares to write about history a second time. And it usually is not meant as a compliment. Of course, that word is revisionist. I was just thinking the same thing. Remember Condoleezza Rice? You remember this? That, that when people started critiquing the Iraq War, when things started going downhill, people realized this was not what we had been uh, told about, and there was all these problems that were foreseeable and nobody prepared for. And she she accused the critics of the Bush administration of engaging in revisionist history, which uh, <laughs> never really forgot that, as if revisionist history is somehow a bad thing. So Condoleezza Rice, Dr. Rice, as she's often referred to, uh, apparently didn't realize that history is a living thing as opposed to something that is simply stuck in the past. Yeah, and that's exactly why we thought it would be useful on this episode and, and interesting for you know our listeners to pull back the curtain a bit to provide a clearer picture, if we can, of how we both came to be historians and what we learned about history uh, along the way. Sound good? Yeah. Well, let's give it a go then. Talk to me.
So let me let me ask you, Josh, you know, about your own personal journey. You know, I've seen the pictures and they are impressive pictures uh, from an earlier time in your life. And we've mentioned it actually in an earlier podcast when you and your brother Benno took about a four month uh, vacation from reality here in the United States uh, and backpacked uh, through uh what, Vietnam and China, right? Yeah, uh, flew into Hong Kong, took the, uh, took the boat to Canton, and then traveled uh, for the next about three months in China and then eventually crossed the border, which was cool. We crossed the border on foot from China to Vietnam. You actually go across a bridge and you're in Vietnam and then spent about a month there, although I think about a week, maybe even more than, it might have been 10 days, crazy enough. We got stuck on an island in the uh, East Thailand Sea, I think it an island called Fukok. We we got there on boat on a boat, and then uh, the winds picked up, and we could not get a boat home. And so we had planned to stay for a weekend, I think, and we ended up staying there for ten Wait days. Wait a minute, it wasn't was it scheduled to be a three hour tour? It was and- very Gilgan's Island like. Yeah, we were eat, ate a lot yeah. of coconut, but we we just we found this this hotel that was kind of still under construction. They had some rooms that were already set up, and they took pity on us because we were stuck in this island, and they let us stay in a room that wasn't yet completed. It was just a, an empty room. And they brought cots in, and uh, they gave each each of us a fitted sheet and a mosquito net. And so we would stick our feet into the the stretchy part of the fitted sheet, and then we would lay the the mosquito net over the top of us, and we'd sleep on our cots. And we did that for ten days. And then you go outside, and they they serve you food, and there was hammocks and a beautiful ocean. And we just hung out for ten days with I think probably one pair of clothes. I don't know. I don't even know if we had a change of clothes. And uh, so our, our time in Vietnam was. Not as extensive in terms of travel to different places because of our the fact that basically a third of our time was spent on this really beautiful island, which apparently now is a, a huge resort island, or I guess was before our current circumstances. But it was it was fascinating being in Vietnam. It was 1995, so it was literally 20 years since the Vietnam War officially ended, and you could still really see, you know, the uh, the scars of that certainly. Uh, so on this island is uh, called Phu Quoc. And uh, on that island, there was a group of, of Vietnamese who uh, had, in, in some cases, uh, served with the Americans. And uh, when the Americans left, they were subject to who knows what kind of treatment. And so Phu Quoc became a place where they could just kind of go and get away from that. And so our, uh, our main um, contact there was a guy named Tony. He had been given the name Tony by a, um, by a group of Marines that he hung around with. And uh, he spoke English, he had a, a, but he spoke in 1970 slang because that was the last time he had spoken english mm. and so tony was our uh, our guide into into Foucault, and he introduced introduced us to all these kind of cab drivers uh who, they were they drove scooters but and we created this whole kind of uh this social situation where every night they would all come over to this hotel and we'd sit around we drink and we eat and smoke cigarettes and and get up to whatever we got up to um and so it was yeah an amazing experience for a 20 year old me and when i got back from from there I was determined to, uh, I was going to study Vietnamese history. That was, that was my goal at that point. My brother, as you heard in our interview, is a, a Chinese historian. And at that point, he had just graduated college and he was already pretty fluent in Chinese. And, you know, that was his path. But uh, I hadn't really worked out my path yet. And this convinced me that Vietnam was the place I wanted to go with that. And I ended up doing my, my senior thesis at UC Santa Cruz on Ho Chi Minh. Um, and it's kind of tying into the, the kind of broader story of my uh, historical consciousness. I didn't just want to do a biography. I wanted to present Ho Chi Minh not as a Vietnamese figure specifically, but as a world historical figure. 
And so the thesis kind of traced him around on his travels from, uh, from Vietnam under the French to the United States, to Britain, to France, to the Soviet Union. He gets there right when, when Lenin dies and Stalin takes over. He's in China, he's in Germany. And then finally, uh, I think, you know, decades after he left Vietnam for the first time, he, he sneaks across the border to Vietnam and, and then uh, almost instantly begins fighting against the Japanese and, and the French and then the Americans. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was very instrumental in, in how I thought about history. I didn't ultimately pursue Vietnamese history beyond that, uh, but it did get me thinking about a bunch of the stuff that I continue to think about. And, and, and by the way, not just the Vietnamese experience, but the Chinese experience as well were very, uh, you know, influential in, in my historical thinking and my historical curiosity, we'll just say. Yeah, and I should mention, uh, if we haven't already, that you do teach two Asian history classes uh, at American River College. You know what, in listening to you, it sounds almost like what you're saying is, is that contrary to the, you know, the, the well-intentioned, you know, a nurse at the, uh, in the neonatal unit, <laughs> you know, at, Kai, at Kaiser on the, uh, the event of my daughter's birth, that, that you didn't see history on that trip as something that was already over. It seems like it, history was all around you and it was still very much alive. Is that fair to say? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I would remind people every once in a while that I was, I was literally born April 11th, 1975. And I, you guys can send me birthday presents later, but um, I was born April 11th, 1975. The Americans, last, um, Americans left Vietnam on April 20th, 1975. So it was nice to be able to remind people that, no, I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I was not yet sentient uh, at the time that the Vietnam War came to an end. But yeah, it was very, very real. Now, the, the funny thing is that as, when you're 20, 20 years ago seems like forever, right? But now, as somebody in my mid-40s, 20 years ago feels like nothing. Um, and so at the time, the idea that, oh, this is still important 20 years later was like a revelation to me. And now 20 years is like a snap of the fingers. It doesn't matter at all. But uh, yeah, it, it really was something where you could just see really clearly the, the the link between the past and the present. As I say, folks, I've seen the pictures and it was, uh, to me anyway, looking at these images, uh, an unforgettable experience. So in some basic way, I guess it's true that we found our way into history by being grounded in history. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think part of that historical consciousness is realizing how much of the stuff that you're part of is is grounded in history, not just seeing it as this, this place you're living through, this, this time you're living through, but uh, understanding the way it is all being constituted by the, these things that happened before. And, um, you know, I don't know that that's how everybody thinks about, about life. Maybe in their, in their own kind of uh, more individualistic way, you understand, you know, your family history, you understand your place in that family. But, um, but, but going through, through life with that historical consciousness, you, you, I think you do think about the broader story of, you know, your community or your nation or the, the world as a whole. Um, yeah, so that, that's really important. And, uh, and that trip was certainly a big part of, of kind of grounding myself in, in, that, in that way of thinking. Even if I wasn't maybe aware of it at the time, uh, I, I think about it now. I think about that trip still all the time because it sure, was yeah. um, so, uh, so much a part of, of who I became, I think. Well, I have to say my own uh, personal journey was... Uh, shorter, much shorter in terms of uh, miles traveled, you might say, uh, than yours. But I, you know, like you, as I think back, you know, finding myself grounded in a specific historical place, a context, and how it uh, did something to, 
you know, sort of focus, you know, my, my view on, on a larger world, you might say. Yeah. So, so you have a fascinating backstory. We don't have time to get into all this right now, but your dad was a, was a basketball coach. He coached in the San Jose area, but eventually got called up to the big leagues. Is that how they would say it? He did. Yeah. He started in, in junior high and high school in, in San Jose, uh, was hired at San Jose City College, a junior college, where they won uh, a state championship, and he featured a team that was uh, integrated, racially integrated, which at the time, the early 60s, 1960, 61, was uh, almost unheard of, you know, in, in, in the state. And it somehow won for him a reputation as being a kind of progressive on, on the race issue, which, as you know, in the 1960s became increasingly high profile. So he was uh, given the opportunity to go up to Cal Berkeley as an assistant coach, uh, which he ended up doing. He was, um, you know, basically working on a what was then a junior college coach's, you know, salary. And he went up to Berkeley and, and basically got poorer. I think they <laughs> paid him even less. And so he moved the family, lock, stock, and barrel, up to a little bedroom community outside the Bay Area called Lafayette, which has since become kind of the high rent district. But in those days, it was just this kind of little quiet town and, and there we sort of crammed into a little ranch style uh, home, and and he started his career, uh, yeah, and what I guess you would call the big time, you know, of college basketball. The Cal Berkeley had won the national championship just a couple of years earlier. Uh, now I was just uh, a baby, a, ba- a baby um, when we moved uh, to Lafayette, but then for the next almost 10 years of my life, you know, spent uh, my upbringing around what became the epicenter of, you know, the youth movement, the counterculture, the the campus protest, um, and the larger world of the Bay Area, you know. Uh, And so as I think back about it now, you know, it really did have a kind of uh, leave an indelible impression on me because not, not unlike your trip through China and Vietnam, it was the unexpected things. You know, my dad ultimately became the head coach uh, at Berkeley in 68. And as you know, I mean, these were heady years, especially in the Bay Area, everything from anti-war to black power. And all of this was visited in some fashion on the athletic program. Uh, which, you know, look, I mean, Cal was famous as early as 1964, right, for the free speech movement. But generally speaking, uh, the University of California, Berkeley had been a conservative campus for the most part. It's where wealthy East Bay people sent their kids for a safe kind of conservative education. But, you know, the time we were there, uh, it was the world turned upside down. And those nice suburban kids you know, became radicals. Uh, the the girls, the coeds, you know, uh, burned their bras and and you know wore leather. Uh, you know, the guys let their hair grow long and you know flashed peace signs. I mean, every day you'd walk through Sather Gate, you it's the sound of bongo music coming <laughs> from what is now Chavez Plaza. You know, echoing in the canyons of the campus, uh, there would be some dance group or dance troupe or some live music of some sort mixed in with, you know, um, 
all kinds of tables and booths set up for various causes, you know, political, anti-war, civil rights, you name it. And so as a kid traveling from uh, Lafayette, we go through the, uh, the Caldecott Tunnel into the East Bay there and, and into Berkeley. I might as well have been going to Narnia, you know, like in C.S. Lewis, going through the hedge into a, 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 a world that clearly, even on my young and impressionable mind, you know, was a much different world, a much bigger world, a much more contested, much more diverse world than anything I was living back in sleepy uh, Lafayette. And I think in, in some basic way, you know, and, and particularly as those conflicts, by the way, Josh, settled in on the basketball program because my, my father, and one of the reasons he was promoted was to help integrate you know, Berkeley's athletic department, mm -hmm. not just the basketball team, but the whole the whole athletic department. And when he hired the first black assistant coach, a guy by the name of Earl Robinson, who had been a star athlete at Cal, um, it made national news. In fact, somebody sent my dad a, a clipping from a newspaper in Africa. Wow. Uh, that showed that this famous university had hired its first black coach. And so it was all strangely disproportionate that way. You know, um, something that happened locally, something that was happening near home somehow got broadcast, you know, to a much larger uh, audience. And uh, did you know that? Did you, know, you uh, understand that at the time? What was going on? You know, I, I, I did from a kid's perspective, you know, because like one time we went to the Kennedy Games, which is the track track made at Cal right there on Bancroft yeah. in the track stadium. And we watched and, and by the way, then some of the great Olympic athletes, you know, Tommy Smith, oh, right. who later won a gold medal in the 68 Olympics, the famous black yeah. love salute, John Carlos. Those guys were all competing. And, and um, so we watched drag me. We walked out of the stadium and I was with my dad and, and uh, my brother or somebody. And there were uh, a couple of dudes, some of the sharpest looking guys uh, I'd ever seen. Black leather jackets, black berets. Uh, serious customers who uh, I understood later, you know, were part of the Black Panther movement. And they were very interested in the happenings of the athletic program because of the black ball players that were coming in uh, to play. And so, you know, my dad was a kind of gregarious guy, you know, never met a stranger, that kind of guy, mm -hmm. and had good rapport in the community and talked to these guys. And, and, it, and I understood that it was different, that it was important. Um, that it somehow reached, as I say, into a, a larger world. And when they, uh, at one point, were scheduled to play uh, Brigham Young, you know, which was the school, the Mormon-owned, uh, church-owned school in Utah, was essentially a segregated campus. There was a lot of concern that somehow taking these black athletes to Provo, Utah, would create some sort of, I don't, I don't know what, some sort of, you know, uh, conflict or something. And at the time, Ronald Reagan was the, you know, the Republican governor of California developed this reputation as a law and order governor and, and no uh, love lost for him and, and Berkeley, by the yeah, way. Right. You know, it would be Reagan that stands in the, the state guard to break up the People's Park uh, assembly. And and so uh, the governor's office let it be known that if my father didn't want to take the team to Provo, that he would stand by him. You know, and my dad, of course, didn't want to, you know, wasn't going to play any part in that. Yeah. Of course he wanted to go, but they had to put the team in the Claremont Hotel for a couple of nights because there were death threats, you know, against them for, you know, if they were to play the game. And so, you know, I didn't get all of that detail, but remarkably, you know, my dad didn't 
try to shield us from it either. He was pretty, you know, candid. And, and he thought that, you know, here's a guy who came out of the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma with a single parent, his mom, who herself was a teacher. She never thought that she could afford to not tell her son, you know, the truth about the, the larger world. And so I think that filtered down to us. And in some way, then that whole experience you know, gave me an appreciation and, a, and an abiding interest in that, that that larger, more complicated world. That's amazing. I want to talk about your own basketball career at some point, but maybe maybe not. Now's not the time to do it. Uh, I'll need ten episodes. Yeah, that, that, that's like my... that's our next ten episodes. Your first day of practice is episode one. All right, and I get all the same creative control that Michael got over here. <laughs> there you go. But, uh, you won't believe how good I look. But, you know, I mean, you made your way to, to American River College after years of graduate school and a little bit of teaching. But when we uh, hired you at American River College, uh, this was really going to be a baptism uh, by fire in some ways for you as a history professor, wasn't it? Oh, my God. I had literally taught three classes in my life at that point. Uh, I don't know if that's what was reflected on my actual um, CV or not. But, yeah, it was three three classes a month, maybe it might've been four, but not very many. Um, and when I taught in grad school, they, the, the history program, I'm sorry, the world history class at Northeastern University was a single semester, all of all of history. So you started at the beginning with maybe agriculture, you go before that, and then you ended in the present. And it was in a 13 week semester. And uh, so I, had, I built the class, or I, I you know, construct my class on this model where you're literally doing like, you know, I don't know how much time every every week you're going through huge swaths of history, um, and uh, you know having to think about history in that way was was pretty enlightening. To, to you really got to just cut everything out that that you can't fit in. Um, you know you don't really get into details. But when I started, we started at American River College. We had at that point, I think there were 18 week semesters. You remember that? Yeah, they were, they were long, extremely ones. long. And world history was two sections, so it was you know you you did um, up to 1500 and then post 1500. So I couldn't use any almost anything I had I had done at Northeastern because I needed to now dig so much deeper into all this stuff. So um, building those classes that first couple years, and I had this Asian history class, uh, which is definitely one of those classes where you know when you're going for a job and they ask you, "Can you do it?" and you say, "Yes, of course I can." But I had no no material for that either. So those first I don't know maybe five years something like that, just trying to build these classes and fill this stuff in was uh was a lot and i was actually had not finished my dissertation yet so i was working teaching those five classes uh four four preps of so four different subjects basically and then also trying to finish my dissertation and i will say that by the time I, you know 2009 i finished my dissertation the classes were basically built by then i really didn't want to think about history all that much at that point i, I didn't read history for a few years because i was just so overwhelmed by those those um you know those first four years of of just the grind of just building this stuff and then doing my own work. And, and it took a while really to, to recover from that and start thinking about, you know, new things and reading new books and, and getting past the, just the struggles of those, those first years. Yeah. That's what I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, what did you learn about history from teaching the subject that, uh, you know, either you hadn't uh, already understood quite as well, or, you know, maybe didn't anticipate. Well, one of the things I, I think I, I came to understand is that you got to have a reason for covering certain material. You know, so, so you read like a lot of the curriculums for, for classes 
and you really get a sense that it's just like a checklist, right? That you have to teach this because this is what's in history class. Now you have to teach this. But one of the things I, I came to realize is that if you don't have a reason why you're teaching, you know, a, a, a particular material, if it's not leading somewhere, if it's not um, expressing some larger historical idea, then it's just, you're just using up time, right? It's not getting anybody anywhere. So I think think that was something I came around to. And, and part of that was just, it was a survival skill because again, there was just so much time to fill based on what I'd been doing in graduate school in terms of teaching uh, in American River College. And so I, I just realized that you have to be intentional really about, about what you teach and not just feel like, first of all, coverage is not everything. You don't need to cover everything because you can't cover everything. And then second, you need to build your class around a set of, of ideas that you want to get across. That the specific content you use is, is the content you use, but you know, in many ways, what I like about, about teaching and what I like about you know, college teaching in particular is that you can have you know, five different professors doing the same class and they can each have their own way into that class. They can have their own approach to that class. But again, whatever that approach is, there needs to be an idea behind it. There needs to be something that's pulling all the material together. So it's not just, well, now we cover Egypt and now we move to the Americas and now we got to talk about India and now we get to talk about Europe, right? Uh, because that's, it's not interesting history and it's not going to feel important to, to students if, if that's all you're doing. Yeah, always looking for that big picture, aren't we? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you, you should be. If you're not, then, then again, it's just, you're just, it's like a grocery list. Nothing fun about a grocery list, right? Yeah, or like walking through a museum where there's an endless number of display cases, you know, one after the other. And yeah. It's, it's hard to know what your takeaway is supposed to be sometimes. I mean, you know, the better museums understand that and really try to create an integrated experience. But uh, it seems like as kids, when you know, we go on field trips to museums, that's what it was like. Look at this and now look at that. Right. You know? You're moving from this room to another room. And that's it's, it's almost segregating these subjects and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think that's the, the main thing I've kind of come to understand and come to stress more is there's got to be something behind it. Um, I actually wanted to ask you a question about, about teaching also. You, you have a longer history than I do, but um, how long did it take you to feel, I, I don't want to say comfortable in the classroom because that's a different kind of thing, but just in terms of your own self, you know, kind of understanding of, of yourself as a teacher, when did you feel like you were actually a good teacher? Or have you ever felt like you're a good teacher? Are you always you always have that doubt? Or was there a point in time where you realized I've crossed some kind of threshold, now I understand what I'm doing? And you, it was, there, it was there a moment where that happened? You know, I think uh, that's a great question. I think it's it's all of the above. You know, anybody who teaches seriously for a living has to come to terms with that existential, you know, what am I doing sort of question? Am I doing anything well? Am I, is this a benefit? To, and, if you, and if you're not feeling that way, at least occasionally, you, you probably aren't as deeply invested in it as you think. Right. You, know? you don't care enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, it was easy enough for me uh, to stand in, in a classroom and in front of a bunch of students because I felt like what I was doing was having a conversation. You know, as, as a student, I liked those professors best who made me feel like we were having a conversation and I was expected to be thinking something in response to what they were saying or, you know, whether I was asking questions or taking something home with me. And so... Uh, I always felt that if I had a chance to do it, I would want to make uh, students feel that way, that I wasn't just talking at them, you know, but in, in inviting them into what was inherently 
a subject of interest. And so uh, that part of it, I think I was, uh, you know, was naturally well suited. The, the thing that was harder was the thing that, you know, bedevils us throughout our careers. And that is, you know, the expectations outside the classroom, whether it be from administration or legislatures or parents or, you know, whatever your audience, you know, in terms of what these days they call measurable outcomes. Yes. Uh, because we don't, I mean, look, you came from Northeastern, right, from a, uh, you know, world history PhD. Uh, I had done some teaching in grad school and, and had also gone at night, basically, and, and taught as a part-timer, you know, in, in some of the local community colleges. So I, I had some experience, but we were basically self-taught, right? I mean, unlike, say, K-12 teachers who go through a credentialing program, you know, we were just uh, expected now that we were finished with our degrees to be able to somehow do this. And and so, you know, having to learn how to make those sort of teacher connections, you know, to those other audiences who expect, whether it be a certain outcome or level of student success or curriculum issues or, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts, you might say, of, of being in education, not just history, but really any any subject matter. You know, it's something that ever since I've been trying to get a handle on. And, and because it's a fluid environment, I mean, listen, there are trends in education and fashions and, you know, they come and go. And so you get geared up to try to to meet expectations of one particular era. And you've taught long enough now, Josh, to know this. And just when you're sort of getting handle on that, somebody comes through and says, OK, never mind, everybody. We've gone on to something yeah. else. Whiplash. <laughs> we've talked we've talked about this a lot but but uh you know the, the trend towards uh professors just being facilitators of learning and i, I remember your reaction that, to that idea that you were just going to be a facilitator that you went to grad school all this time <laughs> you became an expert on the subject matter so you could facilitate other people's learning um yeah i know and i wasn't ready for that sounded a little too passive to me you know they say that the sage on the stage or the right. guide on the side. And I knew I knew which one I wanted to be. But no, in all seriousness, it's it's only because of my passion and, and what I thought ultimately was the importance of what we had to bring. This wasn't just going to be sitting around rapping about themes. Right. You know, um, but there was going to be a, a level of discourse and investigation or inquiry. And it wasn't because I wanted to talk at my students, but I wanted to present the material to them in a substantial enough way that they could get invested in it as well. You know, uh, otherwise I thought it was just, you know, waste, like you said, you know, kind of a, a waste of time maybe of, of, you know, looking at a bunch of different things, but not actually taking anything away. So, uh, yeah, I guess what I learned about history is that for it to ultimately connect, it had to seem relevant and vital to my students, but that I had a part to play in that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking about this, uh, I think it was last week, a student emailed me and, and said that uh, he had he had decided to become a history major because of my class. And I, that's like, there's nothing better than that, right? If you just converted exactly. one person, <laughs> you got them away from... Saving souls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got them away from accounting or something like that so they can follow their true path. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I tell my students, look, you don't have to be history majors, but, um, you know, I, I want you to be good. I want you to be good consumers of history. Right. Yeah. I mean, I want you to, to understand when somebody's bullshitting you and, and have questions. And and because and that gets back to the problem of thinking of history as this commodity, this thing that's already done and, and assembled. And it's not up to you to have any part in that. And 
So I spent a lot of time trying to disabuse my students of that, that they have every part to play in fashioning the meaning uh, of the past and in, in discerning and, and evaluating what people say about the past, because as we pointed out on this podcast many times now, a lot of what people want to say about the past doesn't stand on its own. You know, it, it has an agenda. Yeah. It, it has a purpose. So, yeah, I mean, that that's really what keeps it vital for me. I, I just finished grade yesterday, my 33rd year of teaching. That's what keeps me coming back is that that never that need never really goes away. Absolutely. Yeah. And if it did, then it's time to go, right? That's when you hang them up. Uh, listen, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some reads here today, summer reading. But I want to ask you first, you know, as a reader of history, you know, because you said you, you once you start teaching, it's a grind, especially in the beginning. You know, but at some point you find yourself coming back to what you love doing in graduate school, I imagine, right? Which was reading this really, you know, dynamic and vital history. Can you think of times either in grad school or since where something you read, some history piece that you read, you know, gave you a kind of aha moment or set you on a certain path? I, I almost feel like at this point that I I don't want to, I don't read anything that doesn't do that for me because what's the point what's the point of reading something that's not you know changing your view I mean that's literally how I choose my you know what I'm going to read now is you know read descriptions of it and is this you know addressing something that I've been thinking about and is it thinking is it addressing that thing in a way that I didn't think about before um, now that's not always how I approach things as I said I kind of gave up reading history for a few years just out of pure exhaustion there was a book in uh when i was at uc santa cruz a book called sweetness and power is that elliot mintz yes I, that's not the sugar book yeah, yeah. I, I was just about to look up the author because i forgot to look that up before this but uh yeah so yeah, mintz sydney sydney mintz oh sydney okay yeah so so that book is just about you know the the it's about sweetness basically and how sweetness kind of transformed the world this desire for for sweet stuff um and so that leads to the creation of sugar plantations, which necessitates the, I don't know, necessitates, but it creates this demand for enslaved people, which kind of sets the world on this, on this path. And it's all ultimately about this, this search for, for sweetness. And so reading that as a, as an undergrad, it was just a, such a different kind of history than I ever experienced before. And, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, probably 1994 or something like that, but I still think about that, that book. I haven't probably haven't opened it maybe, you know, once or twice since then or something like that. But, uh, but I do still think about that book book because it did really introduce to the, this idea that history is more than just these stories of of people or events or anything like that. It can be something larger than that. So that that book was really important. Kenneth Pomeranz, The Great Divergence was a big one that came out right when I was getting into grad school. Um, and that really transformed. I, I think I talked about that book a little bit when we talked about the Industrial Revolution. But just, you know, really redefined what an historical comparison is. And what it should be, and what's a good comparison, what's a bad comparison. Um, it redefined, you know, this whole story of of how the world came to be. And I, I still, you know, I think when I teach industrialization, when I teach, um, you know, the modern world, I think that book is still very, very much in the forefront of how I think about this kind of stuff. Yeah, and then and then more recently, again, like almost every book I read, I read specifically because it is going to be revision. We were joking about revisionism earlier, but. What's the point of reading a book that's not going to revise, um, you know, something that you previously held, some some view you previously held? Um, so that's that's what I'm really searching out now is these books that that do that for me. You know, I've, I I tend to read at night before I go to bed, 
And I've realized there's certain books that I get I cannot read before I go to bed because it just gets my mind working. I start thinking about, well, what does this mean for how I think about this subject? Uh, how do I have to change the way I teach it because of this thing I just read? And so I've, I've had to kind of figure out a, a reading schedule that does not require me to read these books right before I try to go to sleep because that generally does not go very well together. <laughs> well, you know, you made a... Oh, I was going to say, you made a great point, uh, you know, in your teaching, too, uh, you know, about finding a big picture and, and that that thing about revision. Look, we it seems like, you know, you love those books. You love those books that explain big things. And sometimes it, it starts with a small thing like sugar, you know, I mean, a seemingly, you know, a table sugar or something, you know, on your breakfast table. But it leads to a bigger world story. And and people wonder, well, why revision? You know, well, ultimately, don't we want to read history or learn history that explains something about the world we live in now? And and let's face it, the world we live in is constantly changing and evolving, and thus the histories we look for to help us understand it likewise change and evolve. Yeah, and I think I think you know, as we've kind of talked a lot about, I think the way that historians think about history has shifted a lot in the past few decades, in particular, and. As that shift has happened, it, it makes us look at the earlier sources in a different light as well. That, you know, we're going to probably talk at some point about this this idea of Orientalism um, and the Orientalists and the way they kind of help frame a lot of the history and the way we think about Asia. But at a certain point, you know, and, and many of those guys did a lot of really good work. They they, you know, uh, uncovered material that had not really been discussed in a in a, in a wide um, for a wide audience before. But they also helped establish. You know, these ideas about what India is, what Japan is, what China is, what the Middle East is. Um, and it's taken a lot of time, I think, to dig out from from their views of, of Asia. Um, and so understanding that that's a process, understanding that there are scholars working today who are calling into question these old ideas. Um, you know, we, I've talked to my brother about his book on um, on the Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan frontier, talking to Vincent Leung about, about you know, uh, this kind of Chinese intellectual history. Uh, talk about the 1619 project. What all those things have in common is that they're they're trying to dig us out from these these previously held ways of presenting this history. You know, and on the one hand, you can say there's you know history's just interpretation and all this kind of stuff, but um, but there is a, a sense in that on the one hand, you can say there's no truth in history. I think that's fair, right? To say there's no truth in history, there's no way to determine absolute truth, but there are a lot of lies. And trying to get out of the lies is, I think, what we got to try to do as we as we read and think and, and teach about history is just cutting out those things that are literally not true. We need our own Hippocratic oath where we have to swear not to do no harm, yes. you know, yeah. with history. <laughs> uh, well, I, I love what you're saying, you know, about how the books you read in effect change the world for you, um, at least your understanding of it and, you know, what, what we thought we could do. In, in carrying this discussion forward is, is each take a turn. You're going to go next episode. I'll go today to talk about some summer reads that we think might change the world. You know, some of our listeners, if they decide to take us up on it and, and to read some of these books, what do you say? Yeah, that, that'd be great. I mean, we want to give you some readable histories, um, but also ones that are, are deep and are, um, you know, digging us out, as I was saying earlier, digging us out from these previous, previously held notions of, of what history is and how we uh, present it. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about your reading recommendations. Now, it turns out for, for this particular summer, you might not be able to hang out on a beach reading these things. Um, but in your uh, sheltered home, we all need things to do. So hit us with some, some good books for our, for our listeners. 
here's what I would say, Josh, you know, as we introduce this summer read segment, this episode and next is, you know, what I have to warn everyone now is to not fall into what we're going to call the Meacham trap. Yeah, that's our good friend, John Meacham, who we miss no opportunity beefing with Meacham. Uh, because the kinds of books that John writes and others, uh, I think, may do some damage, ultimately. Um, these are the big publisher books, usually biographies that you see stacked, you know, like a pyramid at Barnes & Noble or maybe in the airport sandwiched between the with the John Grisham and yeah. Dan Brown pop boilers <laughs> on the one hand and the self-help uh, secrets of a successful life business section on the other. You know, I always love to see where somebody's written a book about how you can create your own startup by learning the, the lessons from the life of Genghis Khan or something. Um, the art of war in, in startup culture. <laughs> Somewhere in between, you'll find John Meacham's books, you know, uh, and you got to avoid getting Meachamized, you know, with the same, what I would describe as the same kind of glad handing, congratulatory, adoring, splashy, celebrity, great man of history narrative. Yeah. How's that? Does that, that sort of cover it? I think that's um, exactly right. <laughs> so the books I'm recommending today, you know, those are empty calories, those reads. You know, you could read those, those biographies, those splashy biographies, and maybe not come away with any different sense, of really, of your worldview or where you fit in the larger scheme. So the books I'm going to recommend today, I hope, will do exactly that for you, uh, all the while providing you with a, with a good read. Um, so I, I like to think of these books sort of the way I think of those David Attenborough, Our Planet documentaries. They're sort of, you know, amazing to look at, but then they also give you a perspective that you can use on the planet going forward. So um, without further ado, uh, here's my list. And I want to I want to have uh, plenty of opportunity, you know, that we uh, take now to to comment on these books and not just list them. All right, so first up is one I've mentioned before. You know a lot about it's Henry Winsex. And it's uh, these books, by the way, we'll all list on our um uh, History Against the Grain website, so don't worry if you don't get all the name uh, or, or reference information. Henry Winsex, Master of the Mountain, Thomas Jefferson and His Slaves, which was published in 2012. According to the blurb uh, on this book cover, it says, uh, Winsex opens up a huge, poorly understood dimension of Jefferson's far away world. And as we talked about on the last episode, in the context of Jefferson as a tragic hero, uh, this is a thoughtful, attentive, extraordinarily well-written account of Thomas Jefferson's double life as revolutionary and advocate for liberty on the one hand. And uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, enslaver of people uh, on the other. And uh, the author takes us inside Jefferson's world, Monticello, his storied plantation home. There we meet the people who lived on the grounds and made it all work from the overseers to the enslaved. Uh, from Jefferson's white family of freeborn children and in-laws to his slave-born children and their extended slave family. So there's plenty of personalities and, and individual stories beyond Jefferson here in this book. Uh, at the same time, the author painstakingly breaks down uh, the walls of secrecy. And I would say a betting that kept... Uh, Jefferson's public reputation alive as the champion of liberty for the last 200 years uh, by, by covering up this story, you know, by, by keeping it in the shadows. 
But uh, unlike those apologists who portray Jefferson simply as a man somehow, you know, victimized by the times in which he lived, a, a reluctant slave owner, someone who, despite his best intentions, couldn't free himself from slavery. You know, when Winsett comes right to the point, he said Jefferson never tried to ex extricate himself. The record of his actions suggests that he formulated a grand synthesis by which slavery became integral to the empire of liberty. Jefferson saw that slavery could build a bridge, says the author, to a profitable future. So yeah, Josh, if you are hungry for more, uh, you can even go online to read about the hubbub this book created when it was published. Uh, and I can tell you, <laughs> Henry Winsack learned that messing with revered figures, in other words, what I like to call telling the truth, doesn't always win you warm hugs and chocolate chip cookies, does it? No, I was going to say, you can sometimes judge a book by who its critics are, right? And when all the worst yeah, people are going after your book, you know, that's a good, it's a book worth reading. Absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it would be, it would be remiss so if I didn't point out that if you want to go read uh, Henry Winsack's book about Jefferson, then you're sort of obligated to get a first person, a longer first person narrative from one of those on the other side of the Jefferson line. That is to say, on the, the other side of the Jefferson Liberty slavery line. And the book that, that always comes to mind now is the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, originally published in 1845. Look, the incomparable Frederick Douglass, uh, a man born into to slavery in the year 1818 uh, on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, Talbot County, uh, Maryland. Uh, it's in this narrative that Douglas tells us in the very beginning of the book just how enslavement conspired to deny him and all slaves uh, from a history of their own from the very moment you were born. Douglas writes, the opinion was whispered that my master was my father, but of the correctness of this opinion I know nothing. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant. It was common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. I do not recollect ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep, but long before I wake, she was gone. And so begins the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Um, I don't know if you, have you ever given it a read? I've read parts of it, I never read the whole thing through. And I, I he's such an incredible figure. I, I really, um, you know, I think if, if our podcast has the influence it does, I think they're going to tear down the Jefferson Memorial and erect one to Frederick Douglass instead, because to me, his life says so much more about liberty than than anything that uh, that Jefferson did. Yeah, and the narrative, you know, focuses on his life in slavery. He spent the first twenty years of his life in enslaved before uh, running away, as it were, uh, to the North in eighteen thirty eight, and he goes on later in his life to write three more. Uh, accounts of his life story that continually expand upon that process, which saw him uh, first gaining freedom. At the time he wrote his narrative, he still couldn't reveal the details of that because every, all the, uh, the main players were still alive, including potentially the slave catchers who would have gone north and taken him back into slavery. Uh, but this is an unforgettable story. I, you know, he, it's, a, it's a narrative he authored himself, um, having taught himself uh, I should say, upon the threat of punishment uh, while a slave to read and write years earlier, he contrived to learn how to read despite the admonitions of 
of the slaveholding society against that. It was illegal in every state of the South to teach an enslaved person to read, but he managed to do that. And uh, as a result, uh, became, you know, this brilliant uh, self-reporter of, of his own story. And, and even though the narrative was written in a style meant to, you know, resonate with white middle-class Christian audiences of the day and to play upon their sympathies, uh, to take up the cause of abolition. Make no mistake, Douglas is unsparing in his account of the myriad cruelties uh, manifest in American slavery, whether it be the base hypocrisy of the slave owners' Christian religion or the brutal uh, physical and uh, psychological torments inflicted on enslaved men and women and children, uh, the sexual, physical assaults that were commonplace in the slaveholding South. And the, really, I mean, look, the whole catalog of cruelties and injustice, uh, injustices inflicted. So the narrative was a tearing off the cover of American slavery that had kept the true picture of slavery's inhumanity concealed uh, by the conceits, you know, and the propaganda and the disinformation of slave owners like Thomas Jefferson. So, yeah, Douglas's voice is indelible, and I would say partnering it up with the Henry Winsett read will give you, I think, a, quite a comprehensive view of what the institution of slavery. And, and, and if you're looking for one more, I'll just throw it on a novel, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 2016, which is it's a literary powerhouse. It's a, it's a work of historical imagination, you might say, grounded in the arts of the novelist but significantly contextualized, I think, uh, you know, the author did his homework. And uh, those three together, for sure, would make almost anyone uh, feel that they had made a serious investment in understanding the American past. That's great. Good list there. I like that they're all connected. They all tell a, tell a similar story or tell, a, tell a story about a similar thing in different ways. Uh, you know, mentioning Colson Whitehead, uh, you know, one of the things I found over the years is that Sometimes a, a really well-researched, well-thought-out piece of historical fiction can actually reveal more about the past than, you know, a kind of typical popular history does. I agree. Um, because it's not, it's not tied down to, you know, these, having to tell this narrative of these specific events with all different players. It can kind of construct its own narrative and get across, in many ways, a more realistic portrayal of this world than you could get from, um, again, those, those histories that show up on the shelves of Barnes and Noble or on the bestseller list of Amazon or whatever the case may be. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, no, I know. I think it's the artist's gift, you know, to capture truth in a, you know, in, a, in an entirely creative way, you know, and, uh, historians are bound after all, we have rules, Yeah. <laughs> but I think the best histories as I think about, you know, the histories I love to read are nevertheless ones that can abide by those, you know, rules of the discipline, as it were, you know, of truthfulness, et cetera, but also provide a kind of entryway, almost almost like a, an artist might. You know, there was another book I want to mention, a friend of ours, Trevor Getz, who is a historian at uh, San Francisco State, uh, wrote a book called uh, Abina and the Important Men. And it's a graphic history. Uh, in other words, like you would think a graphic novel, it's illustrated by an artist, Liz Clark, who, who you know, created all the images uh, for the book in that distinctive style of the graphic novel. And what Trevor did is he found, you know, a historical story and framed it in terms of a, of a graphic history 
uh, throughout the first half of that book, he tells the story of a West African woman, Abina Mansa, uh, who lived along the Atlantic coast of West Africa and had been taken captive in war. This was in the late 1800s now, uh, and handed over as a slave servant to a, quote, important man, Kwamina Edo, who's the patriarch of a wealthy family in the Gold Coast colony of Great Britain. Now, this was unlawful by British standards, but, but the British couldn't really enforce these things. And so it was left up to this woman, Abina, to take it upon herself to flee from her captor and to make her way to Cape Coast settlement, uh, where there was a British um, civil servant uh, who befriended her, a young uh, uh, English civil servant uh, by the name of James Davis, who was actually an African-born but educated in English missionary school. And he he befriended Abina and helped her initiate legal proceedings against her, her owner, her slave owner, in a, in a British colonial court, believe it or not, where she eventually, uh, she eventually won her case uh, and set a kind of precedent, you know, in the colonial uh, governing of of the Gold Coast colony. And so what Trevor does in this book is he tells that remarkable story, uh, but then fully contextualizes it and again pulls back the curtain to show how he created that story as a as a historian, you know, to, to open up the historian's toolkit, in other words, uh, and what has become an ever more sophisticated toolkit that historians use borrowing from all kinds of disciplines to reconstruct what would otherwise be essentially unknown stories. I mean, he found the trial transcript in some dusty archive in Ghana, you know, hadn't been looked at in a long, long time. And, and from that one trial transcript was able to, in effect, construct the world of Abina and the important men. So yeah, another, another book I would uh, suggest that would help folks understand why it is that history gets revised, why it needs to be revised, and ultimately why it's often better uh, for being revised. That's great choices. You actually assign, do you, you assign a master of the mountain in your American history class, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I, and I've, I've, I've it's been one of my really more satisfying, um, you know, books that I've assigned because I really take the students through the entire book and, and Winsec, like some of these other historians we're talking about, makes no secret of, of how he's building his case. So every step of the way, you can look up his sources, you can read the original primary sources to see if you agree with his interpretations. You know, you can follow the leads, in other words, and I, I appreciate that kind of intellectual honesty. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, have you assigned the Abina before? I thought you had assigned that one as well. I, you know, I reviewed the book for the publisher and loved it. And then we, uh, one of our colleagues we hired began teaching that modern world history class and I gave up my section. Oh, right, so I right. haven't taught yeah. that modern world history since that second edition of the book came out. And I've always kind of chomped at the bit. I would love to assign it. But for our listeners, I would say it's a real treat, uh, you know, if you want to check it out. Yeah. Do you have a, an essay assignment for our listeners that they can they can write about for the uh, for the book just to give you that sense of closure. <laughs> That's the good news. There will not be a quiz. This will not be in the quiz. All right. I repeat, there will not be a quiz. So you're nicer than me. I was gonna I was gonna assign some work with, along with this, but you're just saying just read it for fun. <laughs> yeah, you get a social pass in Paget's uh, summer history class. <sighs> Facing existential threats, my advice kill him dead, no regrets. The 
devil's rejects writ large. Observe the precepts of a benevolent God. Blue-eyed Prometheans in the heart of darkness. Land of the monsters. Walk like Quetzalcoatl amongst the carcass. As we head out today with our outro segment, we'll finish with a final consideration and illustration of why revising history is such an important, necessary, and ongoing part of what historians do. Because while we may perceive events in the past to be in one sense over or behind us, as people sometimes perceive these things, the more important and the more truthful point is that the past itself is never a finished project, but always stands in some relation to those of us living in an ever-changing present. This is true in our own lives and our own personal journeys as well. Whether we're recalling, you know, my growing up around Berkeley of the 60s, or in Josh's case, traveling through China and Vietnam in the 90s, our understandings of and reflection on those personal histories and the stories we tell about them are likely to change as we age and move through life. And this is no less true of the larger reflections and understandings of the broader and shared global past. Thus, in a basic way, in both cases, the personal and the global, the history we need most is the history that explains that relationship between our past and who we are today, whether as individuals or as global communities. Now, one of our favorite historians here on History Against the Grain, Hayden White, explained it this way. The history you get is determined by the story you choose. And the story a historian is likely to choose is the story about the past that can give greatest coherence and meaning to the history. That is to say, a history best informed by the moral and material concerns we share or the ideological commitments we maintain. And therefore, histories which speak to our world, the world in which we currently live, or perhaps just as importantly, the world we aspire to live in. And so, Josh, you are going to leave us today with some thoughts on why we need to revise many of those old stories. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned Hayden White a second ago, and I want to go back actually to a quote I think I read a, a few weeks ago when I was talking to Vincent Leong, where Hayden White says, quote, historians in general, however critical they are of their sources, tend to be naive storytellers, uh, end quote. And, you know, what he's kind of saying here is that they're naive because they don't take into account, as you were just talking about, how much their stories construct history rather than represent it. Uh, they don't see themselves as being present in those stories when, in fact, their fingerprints are all over that because of the way they choose to tell those narratives, the way they seek to connect the various facts that they've collected from that past. It's as if in their own excavations of the past, they've kind of buried us in their rubble. And so part of what we do now when we engage in historical revision, which is what we're talking about uh, you know, throughout a lot of this episode, is what we're trying to do is dig out of that rubble. And if by doing that, we can hopefully see the past in a new way. Now, one of the ways we can dig out of the rubble, one of the ways we can see the past in a new way, is by going back into the primary source material. Uh, the primary source material is there. Um, you know, It exists on its own. In theory, we can see it in a new way. We can understand it in a new light. But that primary source material also offers some, some challenges as well. Because while Hayden White may be correct that historians are naive storytellers, many of those people who are creating the primary sources that we're so reliant on were far from naive. Rather, they often seem to have been acutely aware 
of what they were doing in writing their stories. They were presenting stories that made them look good. They were presenting stories that, um, you know, told their story in such a way as to make them seem more heroic, more vital, more worthy of, of power or wealth or whatever else. And the problem here is that historians have sometimes been overly credulous in taking these accounts at face value, especially when doing so supported their own previously held assumptions. I, uh, again, also in that interview with Vincent Leung, I noted that, you know, when Europeans really start to write critically about China in the 18th century, they are coming at China at, at a point in their history where they've begun to believe in this idea of progress. And so the Chinese sources often spoke to this kind of eternal Chinese history. And so what we had there is this kind of confluence where the Chinese view of themselves as expressed in their own historical sources matched up with these European views of who they were as Europeans, but also who the Chinese were as well. And so it fit very well into their broader idea of progressive Europeans and stagnant Chinese. Now, the actual story of Chinese history is far from stagnant. It's far from being simply based on tradition uh, or conservatism or anything like that. But it's an example of the primary sources were read by, by Europeans in a way that supported a very particular set of assumptions that they brought with them. So with all that in mind, I want to talk actually about another historical issue that has been confronted and, and kind of dealt with with a lot of excessive credulity, as we might say, by generations of historical thinkers. And that's the idea of the white god. This is an idea that is so common, so pervasive in the history of culture contact as to seem almost absurd because it just keeps appearing over and over and over again. And it appears certainly in the historical record itself, but also in popular culture. Um, just as one example, we have uh, in Return of the Jedi, uh, where C-3PO is lauded as a god by the Ewoks. You, guys, you remember that famous moment in the Return of the Jedi? That. Not quite the white god, but maybe the gold <laughs> god at least, the golden god. Even in that case, it's expressing this popular notion that when quote-unquote more advanced people arrive amongst the more primitive people, they will be accorded the rights and the power of gods. And so it, it is this kind of pervasive model of cultural contact, particularly in these cases where it was Europeans encountering societies that were deemed more primitive, as I suggested. We don't really see those stories, for instance, in the case of Europeans encountering you know, the societies of East Africa. Vasco da Gama arrives in East Africa in the late 15th century. These are societies that are very well connected to the broader Indian Ocean world. There's, you know, Arabs and Persians and Parsis and, um, and Armenians in these ports. These are very cosmopolitan societies with uh, sources of knowledge from a lot of different places. Same thing when Europeans get to India or China or Indonesia. They don't make these same claims to gods-like status they don't present these Asian and East African cultures in that same vein of kind of primitive primitiveness. But when it comes to the history of European encounters with the Americas and then European encounters with Polynesia and the Pacific more broadly, these white god myths uh, abound. They're everywhere. You can make the case that this entire idea of the white god originates with Columbus himself, uh, the one who is engaged in what I what, what I often call the, uh, the pristine encounter with the Americas. This is an encounter between two groups of people, neither of whom has any sense of the other's existence. They have no knowledge of the other that they can kind of turn to. This, the assumptions they have have not been built yet. And so the Columbian encounter is such a particular one because Europeans at that time didn't know that there was other people out there beyond you know, the quote-unquote known world. 
and then the people like the Tainos and the Caribs that uh, Columbus encountered also, as far as we know, because we don't have their own writings, their own understandings of this encounter, also didn't have a sense of a world beyond the seas that people could come from. And so it's it's this point of just pure uh, encounter right, that we don't really see. Again, when Europeans get to, to Polynesia, for instance, while they were encountering the Polynesians for the first time, by that point, they had this history of encounters they could reach back to. Um, and so it's not as pristine as that Colombian encounter was in the sense that while the Polynesians in places like Tahiti and Hawaii may not have been aware of people beyond the oceans, Europeans were aware uh, that there were potentially people in places they had not encountered before, and they could therefore reach back to this prior history of encounters. Yeah, I like, you know what, I like that a lot because in comparison to the George Lucas characters, you know, when we have no frame of reference, yeah. in other words, no prior experience, it's a kind of open script, it really does beg for whatever baggage we carry with us to then find its way into the script in order to somehow fashion or construct the the other, right? Absolutely. And so there's a historical anthropologist named I.C. Campbell, I think he's Australian, and he, he has this piece called The Culture of Cultural Contact. And he's making the, the case that cultural contacts themselves have their own culture, that there's there's a kind of set of ideas built into it. And that when you look at some of these encounters happening in, for instance, Polynesia, which is what he's focused on, both sides, both the Europeans and the Polynesians or Melanesians or whoever else are kind of constructing these encounters based on not necessarily just their own culture, uh, their own myths, their own whatevers, but on circumstances at the time. All right, so let's get back to Columbus because as, as I was suggesting, his encounter is the encounter that's going to in many ways influence all of their encounters. Uh, Columbus's letters are going to be a bestseller uh, in, in Europe. They're going to be translated into various European languages and generations of people will read those letters and those letters will help them understand the nature of these contexts. Um, and so let me get to Columbus's own depiction of, of that encounter. This comes from a letter he wrote to Ferdinand Isabella on his way back from his first voyage. And amongst his other descriptions, he begins to describe the people that he's encountered. We now know, know them as the Tainos. And he says of them, they know nothing of idolatry. On the contrary, they confidently believe that all might, all power, all good things, in fact, are in the heavens. They thought that I too had descended thence with these ships and sailors. And so in this just brief passage, he's establishing this idea of his own deification, right? That they understand uh, the power that comes from the heavens and they believe that I am from the heavens as well. He then goes on to say in a later part of the same letter, the ones who now go with me. And that's a huge euphemism. He has basically captured a group of Tainos and he makes them travel with them to different islands. But he, he uses this kind of passive idea, they go with me. The ones who now go with me, persist in the belief that I leaped down out of the skies. And they were the first to announce that fact wherever we landed, some of them calling out loudly to the others, come, come, and you will see the men from heaven. So this is in, in many ways the beginning of the white god myth. Um, as far as I know, we don't have any prior version of this, any prior version of the idea that when Europeans show up somewhere, they will be deified in this, in this way. But this would not be the last such example. Famously, about 30 years later, when Hernan Cortez arrives in central Mexico, he begins to build up his own narrative about uh, his kind of deification. We'll, we'll get into this within, within the Aztec Empire. Now, in his own letters, 
because he writes a series of letters as well. He is going to make the case that he tells Montezuma, the Aztec king, that, um, that he is a servant of a more powerful king across the sea. And Montezuma is going to make the case, again, within Cortez's letter, that his people have this idea that they were not the first to settle this territory, that the territory had been settled by another king, and that king had, that king had gone away sometime, um, but he would return in some future date. And so within this description, what Cortez is kind of laying out is this idea of this messianic role that Montezuma is applying to Cortez. Um, now, later on in later kind of Spanish writing about this encounter, that would be further augmented by the idea that Montezuma believed that Cortez was um, the precursor to the return of this god Quetzalcoatl, and therefore himself was something of a deity. Now, this has been criticized, you know, over the, the previous, you know, particularly 20, 30 years, but it still is very per pervasive. Um, I did have this experience where a textbook I was using uh, reported that as just a factual case, that Montezuma believed the Spanish were gods, and I actually contacted the publisher. And I said, you got to take this out of this. This is not appropriate to be putting this in there. And they kind of hemmed and hawed, but eventually they actually did take it out. You know, they, they were suggesting there's ambiguity to it. But that, amb that ambiguity is, is dangerous, I think, because it does feed so much into this, this white god myth that just gets repeated over and over and over again. And then the history of Polynesia is also full of, I'm uh, sorry, contacts with Polynesia is also full of these white god myths. And you get a sense that, you know, these guys have all read each other. Uh, Cortez has read Columbus. Virtually everybody who comes after Cortez has read Cortez. And it builds up this, this idea in the minds of Europeans about how they should and will be understood by the quote-unquote primitive peoples of the world. And so into this discussion, I just want to uh, bring in an anthropologist named Gananath Obayaskeri. Um, he is a Sri Lankan uh, anthropologist, and he is going to take umbrage over this idea of the white god myth. He says, never have I seen anywhere in my own society, in my own Sri Lankan culture, any examples of Sri Lankans deifying Europeans. It just doesn't happen. And so why does it seem to keep happening in, in history that white people show up and they become gods to those they encounter? And so he builds up this idea of the myth model. Um, and the myth model essentially is what people bring in to these encounters with them. Um, and what he says essentially is really important. Now, there's a lot of things I don't like about Oboyaskeri's work. Uh, there are a lot of things I disagree with. But I think there's something very important about his idea that, that Europeans should not be seen as the representatives of rationality and the only ones who are able to improvise within these encounters. That all humans regardless of who they are, regardless of what cultures they come from, are equally capable of rationality, equally capable of improvisation, and equally capable of being enslaved by the myths they bring with them. Right? This is not the sole um, set of talents of one people or another. And so he says that the myth model the Europeans bring in, in with them is this myth model of the white god. They expect to be deified, and therefore, wherever they go, they are deified. So this stuff is, is dangerous. This stuff is dangerous because what it ultimately determines is whose voices can be heard and whose voices are not going to get heard. You know, one of the things that also connects all these encounters I've, I've been talking about, whether it's in the Americas or in Polynesia, is the fact that in none of those cases do we have a description of these encounters from the other side. Right? Every encounter that, that I've talked about, 
whether it's in the Caribbean with Columbus or in Mexico with Cortez or in uh, Tahiti or in Hawaii. They're all these one-sided encounters in the sense that we have copious material describing the encounters from the European point of view uh, and no material describing those encounters from the point of view of the other side. And so when we accept this idea of the deification of white explorers, uh, the white god myth, it not only presents Europeans in this particular way, but it also essentially does not allow us to hear these other voices. We need to be more open and more willing to hear the voices of the Tahitians, to hear the voices of the Hawaiians, and to see these stories from more perspectives than we previously had. And so we find ourselves wanting to revise these histories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of what happens is that for so long, these, these ideas were just accepted. And that's what, you know, Obey Scaries, he basically writes a book because he's so sick of hearing these stories. And again, while there's, there's problems with the book he writes, it's called The Apotheosis of Captain Cook. While there's problems with it, he is highlighting a very important issue is that when we come to accept these, these particular ideas of, of how historical events happen, it doesn't just determine how we think about the past, but it sometimes determines how we behave in the present. Um, and so it is very important to be wary of the way the past has been, been presented, to ask new questions, to look for new sources, to read the old sources in new ways, and hopefully to come up with a history that better reflects not just the single perspective of, of the white explorer, the white conqueror, but tries to get into more of what this encounter would have been like from both sides of, of the event. Yeah, I really like that a lot. I mean, you make several you know key points there. Uh, you know, that, that in addition to, to not allowing certain voices, uh, those who are writing these stories obviously had a vested interest. And it's, I think, safe to say that their own imperial project was further uh, at, uh, supported uh, by telling the stories in, in those ways, you know, as, as white god, you know, conquerors, etc., that that supported the imperial project of, of these European states. And the world we live in now, well, it's a different world now, isn't it? Yeah, and and as a result, we should look at the history differently because we we shouldn't be blinded by these same imperial projects. We should accept these uh, depictions of people written as they were with these imperial projects in mind. And I, I should point out, it's not just the imperial projects. It also just makes these guys feel good. Of course, Cortez wants to present himself as <laughs> being deified. Um, he's trying to make the case of his value to the king. Um, he's trying to make the case for why he should be accorded special rights in these territories that he's, that he's quote-unquote conquered. Um, and so it's not just about the imperial project, it's about individuals themselves who are making the case for their own significance within these stories. Gee, Josh, you know, if we just had maybe a narcissistic political leader in our own time uh, that we could relate to, all that would be clearer to us, huh? Imagine when future historians are write, write the history of this completely from Twitter. <laughs> Hey, fabulous job uh, today. Uh, uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening. You know we're going to be back at you next week with another episode. We'll see you all next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so we repeat.